0: This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. Today, my guest is writer and author Bob Kauser. Author of three nonfiction works, including Dream Season and Greenfields, Crime, Punishment, and A Boyhood Between, both highly acclaimed works. His work spans the American literary magazines River Teeth, Fourth Genre, The Pinch, The Missouri Review, Prairie Schooner, Brevity, and Creative Nonfiction. He's the recipient of fellowships from the Vermont Studio Center, the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Full disclosure, Bob is a professor of English at St. Lawrence University, my alma mater, where I also serve on the Board of Trustees. But first and foremost, we've been writing colleagues for a long time. I've read all his work, and my work appears in a collection he edited, so let's talk writing. Hi, Bob. How are you?
1: I'm well. How are you?
0: I'm good, thank you. And I'm delighted to have this opportunity. I'm a huge fan of yours, and I've learned a lot from your work. So let's help people by talking about that
1: work. Let's do that, and I want to say likewise. I'm, I'm really excited, and I'm a fan of yours, and follow your work, and of course, recruited you for that anthology you spoke of. So I think this should be a lot of fun.
0: I think it will be fun. And I talk to academics all the time. I live in an area of many colleges, and of course, have many friends on the St. Lawrence faculty. So the question comes up all the time about mass market publishing, and the difference between that and academic publishing. Along with the required academic publishing needed to be a professor, is there some expectation of English professors that you will also break into the mass market? Um, no, I think I never felt that. I, I've, uh, you know,
1: of course academics have to respect academic publishing, university press publishing, etc. And so, when I was still in the sort of in the process of getting tenured and promoted, there wasn't any expectation that publishing I would do would be. Mass market, but it certainly was something I wanted to do because I, you know, I wanted the respect and the broader readership and and so on. So, but no, there wasn't an actual expectation, even though I was a creative writer as opposed to you know a critical writer.
0: Yeah, I always wondered about that because yeah, I I think it would the pressure would be enormous. But I mean, you've published in some of the loveliest journals in existence. And, but I wonder about what the demands on, on your teaching load, the, the writing, editing, locating a place for one's voice, sending out, getting rejected, getting accepted, all that takes so much time. So how did you go about choosing some of these places to pursue? I think a lot of people listening to this would like to know, because you must do it with some efficiency given the limited amount of time you have for sending stuff out. Yeah. Well I can tell two quick
1: anecdotes about my publishing career. And and you know, when I was in graduate school at the University of Nebraska, the university published a very respected literary journal, called the Prairie Schooner. This was back when everything was print. And um, they had a lending library, basically. They had a wall with a rack of every important literary magazine published in America at that time because all the journals traded with one another. And I just went mm. and sat down during my off time when I wasn't either teaching or taking graduate classes, and just paged through and at that time, and you know, I'm a nonfiction writer almost exclusively, and so in the in the mid 90s, not even every magazine published essays at that point. so I just sort of identified mm-hmm. ones that seemed to publish essays that would have welcomed my work. A lot of times it's these crazy coincidences, but Lee Goodkin, who published creative nonfiction, gave a lecture at Nebraska while I was there. And said something along the lines of, you know, people shouldn't try to write memoir until they're 30 years old. They don't have anything to say. Maybe even said 40 years old. <laughs> and at the time, <laughs> at the time, I was 25. And I tell this story in class a lot of times because I want to give my students agency, you know. I mean, it's a habit of mind. It's not about age or experience. It's about, you know, your kind of relationship to the experiences that you have had. And some people, I meet them all the time mm-hmm. in my classes, are just oriented toward their experience in this particular way. They're sort of born to do this kind of thinking and writing. Mm -hmm. So anyway, because I met him, had a few days before put an essay in the mail to him in Pittsburgh. And, uh, you know, I think because he met me, because he said that and we had an exchange about it in this small little lecture that he gave, when he got back, his readers had put my essay on top of his you know, yes pile. And he immediately wrote me and said, you know, I'm going to eat my words. I'm going to publish this essay oh, and congratulations. And, you know, I was, that was huge. I was 26, maybe 27. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's about being in, you know, sometimes just being in the right place at the right time and really going for it with your work and sort of believing in what you're doing. And that was huge. And then the book, the story of my first book was, there was a conference at Harvard called the Harvard Conference on the Book, I think. And I went to a lecture by a publisher named Morgan Entrykin at Grove oh, I know Atlantic. Him. Oh, called, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. called. He's you know, a real maverick publisher, like lots of great stories about him. But the thing about him is he'll take a chance on a writer that he believes in. Mm-hmm. And he gave a lecture called From Idea to Book. And that's kind of where I was. I had thought about, wouldn't it be interesting to play semi-pro football as a college professor and, and write about it? So I went to his lecture and he said, you know, he said several really pointed things, but one of them was, if your book has a subculture, people will buy in. If mm-hmm. you're exploring a, sort of an aspect of American life that people don't know very much about, that book has, has legs and it has a chance.
0: Such good advice.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, again, I, I had to go to Boston. and I had to, you know, get the hotel room. I had to, mm-hmm. you know, attend the, the right panel. But I... Did And at the end of it, he had the name of six literary agents that had told him beforehand that they were willing to accept book proposals from people who attended the conference. And I had 35 pages of the book written. I sent it to Suzanne Gluck at William Morris. And I heard back from her the next afternoon by phone through her assistant. It was so bang, 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 I couldn't even believe it. And then I was in the predicament of having promised a book I now had to write. <laughs> uh, do you know what I mean? But
0: that's a hell of a predicament.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I would do that again. That
0: <laughs> well, let's talk
1: about that book. Sure, yeah. Um
0: let's talk about that book. That that book, Dream Season, is the first thing I, I read of yours. And so let's set it up a bit. You've just given us a little bit about it, but the subtitle is A Professor Joins America's Oldest Semi Pro Football Team. It's crazy what you did. And it's well published, <laughs> Grove Press 2007. But you so give us a little bit of backstory um, about like what you did, why you did it, and when in the name of the good lords did you start taking notes along the way? Well,
1: you know, I come from a small town in Tennessee where to be anybody you had to play football, so I did. But I was also the son of two college professors, and one of them a writer, and so that was always you know part of my makeup as well, and. So I obviously chose wisely and became a college professor rather than a linebacker. But (laughs) when I got, you know, but it was always, I'd gone to Nebraska, which is another school that can't decide whether it's an academic institution or a football team. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was in my, you know, and I was young-ish, you know, still. I was, I think, 30 years old. I was 28 when I arrived at St. Lawrence. But the other thing was, you know, everything has to fall into place. And you have to, one of the best bits of advice I ever got about nonfiction writing was from William Kittredge. He told this audience that um, I was in that they won't pay you to juggle one orange. (gasps) Meaning I think that my story with football wasn't enough, but the fact that this team was more than 100 years old, this team in Watertown, and that they had been the subject of the Frederick Exley book – as well, you know, just those coincidences, those things kind of lining up or falling into place, all had to happen.
0: So this is Watertown, New York, and it had been the subject of a book by the the really, almost people who have a cultish following for Frederick Exley, so we need to just explain that. Definitely. And you're a professor at the time, and you say to someone in your family, I think I'm gonna go try out for America's oldest semi-pro football team? Is that what you're saying? (laughs)
1: Yeah. I said to my now ex-wife, uh, you know, Hey, I think I'm going to go and do this. And because, you know, we, we, you talked about the pressure of publishing and, uh, I was new in the career, had a baby who was a year old and, and I was feeling the pressure of, you know, I had written these, I really sort of at that point I thought anyway, had milked my childhood for, for all it was worth in my earlier writing. And, um, that book would come out later but at that point I and I wasn't anybody I, there was no reason anyone would be interested in mm-hmm. it and or that's what i thought and so this was a gimmick you know and mm-hmm. but you know as with any i think with any project like i i really wanted to see if i could do it as well
0: both play football and write
1: <laughs> yeah right i always say um, i'm a second string football player but a first string writer or something like that or maybe third string football player second string writer but I, uh, so I went down the season before I played and watched a game and thought, you know, I, this is not going to kill me physically. So I spent the intervening time, you know, back in the weight room again, um, trying to remember what it felt like to be physically ready to play semi-pro football, which, you know, is not pro football. Uh, what I would say is the players weren't as talented as the guys that you see on Sunday, but they were as big. <gasps> yeah. So Yeah.
0: It's a little frightening.
1: Yeah, there were a lot of big men, big Big nasty hairy man and and me, the little professor. And I, I walked, not that I'm little, but I walked into the locker room the first day, and I smelled that smell mm-hmm. of like moldy shoulder pads, mm-hmm. and I and it, the the fear and anxiety returned, you know, like full. And I just, but I knew what I said to myself. You know, you, you asked when I started taking notes. I had a little handheld recorder. I'd read, you know, I'd been teaching nonfiction writing, so I'd read Gay Talese on on how to not interview someone and what he calls hanging out access. And I knew that if I went around like interviewing my teammates and coaches all the time, that that would get very old. And I would always be, they would always notice Mm -hmm. my difference. And so I learned to, you know, listen very carefully. And then in my car on the drive home, which was 60 miles, uh, record snippets into a, a voice recorder. And that became... I think the dialogue is really important to the book. Mm-hmm. Because at first they were like, oh yeah, he's writing a book. And by the end of the season, I was just a guy on the team. Both, yeah. that's kind of you know one of the things that surprised me, both to them and to myself, was that I kind of slipped into that world for a while. Well,
0: absolutely. And this book is no more about football per se than, than well, it's not about football. For me, what lives on the page and percolates into the soul of the reader here is how we fit our childhood dreams into our sort of quote unquote real lives we have those childhood dreams, we have those things we'd like to go back and challenge ourselves to do again. But the integration there of what you learn about you and what you do is fascinating. So you're we're writing that in, in real time, which is hard. Taking down notes, as you say, driving the 60 miles back and forth. And life can kind of become art and art becomes copy and, and you can edit copy, but you can't edit life. So, <laughs> There are some potholes in writing in real time. Can you just give us a couple of them—the the things that you sort of, you know, sort of stepped into that you would advise other writers to be careful of? Yeah, I can tell you that again. I mean, I
1: had promised a book I had not written, and I and I was paid for it, mm-hmm. which is lovely and not always the case in my in my in my publishing life. But I had a again a sabbatical, a blessed sabbatical for the fall term. So. I was going to write from, you know, September to December. And then I had to turn in a manuscript. And And editing was not what I had thought it would be. I mean, I think I was thinking of, like, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Maxwell Perkins, you know. <laughs> there was no Maxwell Perkins. My editor was 10 years younger than I was. Right.
0: Let's explain that. Maxwell Perkins was, was the famous editor for many people, but certainly most um, famously, perhaps, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you had no Maxwell Perkins. You had someone ten years younger than you who had forty nine books that season, and yeah, right, yeah. right, yeah. So when I when immediately I, I like I had this
1: I wrote you know half maybe half the manuscript and was having this crisis of faith. Like no one was looking at it. No one was telling me that it was going to be all right. I had no idea what I had in my hands, and so I called up Intricin in a in a kind of fit of. Uh, self-doubt and which I I always, I have those every day Mm -hmm. and I finally broke down and called him and I said, look, I just, you know, I've kind of at sea out here, you know, what's, you know, and he he said, hey, I saw what you, what you sold us. I got faith in you. Now go write this book. And it almost felt like a football coach sending you back in, you know, like there's no, there's no SOS. There's no reinforcements. You are the writer. And so that was a big lesson. You know, I, I felt kind of stupid. And, um, I'd send it in to them in December with no... I mean, I, I didn't know if they wouldn't send the whole thing back and say, start over again. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, I accept all compliments. But some of them are motivated by, you know, some of it's fluff for promotion and things like that. But when the copy editor that they sent the book to, he sent me the copy, you know, all his red lines, and mm-hmm. I still have it. And uh, if I could figure out a way to, to put it on my wall, I would. But <laughs> he just sent this one post note, and it said... Uh, damn fine book, it was a pleasure. And I thought, that one you can believe in. Like oh, nobody asked him to do that, that wasn't part of the paycheck. And mm-hmm. so writers just, just, you know, like, it's hard to find uh, like uh, support that you can actually bank on and, and mm-hmm. put your stock in, you know, and I yeah. think that was, that was the end of that very long lonely sab- sabbatical, um, just typing, you know, and that, which is not easy.
0: Well, the book went on to be one of the New York Times Book Reviews, Editor's Choice of the Year and Paperback Row Selection, was listed among the Chronicle of Higher Education's best ever college sports books. And then you got these amazing reviews. I mean, the Sports Illustrated review, which I remember, um Steve Russian, the senior writer for Sports Illustrated, said the professor is a madman. I wouldn't have had the nerve or knees to write this book or the vocabulary. Thanks thank goodness then for Bob Kauser, a rarity who can write and play defensive line. And it and he goes on and it it's pretty wonderful. And I'm delighted for that because you're right. Ultimately it comes down to you alone at the desk. And while you can reach out to your editor once or twice and maybe get a come on, go back in the game. It's not easy, but what I find fascinating is how you then moved on from there, and you go again into that place of childhood in for your next book, and and I and I thought about how to. It, it's sort of there's a similarity between Greenfields and 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 the 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 first book, in that for me it comes for a place it, it comes from a place of childhood and how to put away the things we thought then and, and then have to integrate them later on to varying degrees of success. So there's that pull in Greenfields that I think all of us have is to reconsider something that's something dramatic that happened in our childhoods. So give us a, a sense of where Greenfields, crime, punishment, and a boyhood between started for you. And then I've got some questions about how you wrote it.
1: Well, it's, it started as it was the, there was a final essay in the, a collection that I wrote as my dissertation about when I was out in Nebraska, they, uh, there was an execution in, and, and Lincoln is the state capital. I'd never lived in a capital city before. So I'd never had that kind of proximity to an execution. So the all the machinery of it, the media machinery and, and that kind of thing were, were brand new to me. And it reminded me, of this case that I had grown up with, where a, a classmate of mine was abducted around around this time, around Labor Day of our third grade year, and and murdered, found dead in a in a little country lane, and so I, my mind did this kind of rhyming thing, and as it turned out, so I, the execution I witnessed in Nebraska was ninety eight, and then the execution of this of the man convicted of that murder was was two thousand, and so. You know, one of the crucial things that I figured out as a teacher of nonfiction writing that I sort of knew intuitively as a writer of nonfiction was that the events that you describe are important and that you need to recreate them in the same way that uh, you would if you're a fiction writer. You know, Mm -hmm. um, as Vivian Gornick asks, is the world created vivid, living and real? Mm. But what you're miming is not the events themselves, but the act of your mind Apprehending often in memory all those events Mm -hmm. and and reconsidering them, ordering them for yourself. And so that's what I did in that essay in in a very short, truncated way. And then I realized, you know, as I exited that book, that probably there was a a heck of a lot more in that story than I had plumbed yet. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted the book to be about the 30 years in between. Right. And and really also myself as a representative American, because Americans went from a moratorium on the death penalty in the 70s to, you know, 100 people a year in Texas in the mid 90s when I was writing the book. So right. I wanted to try to describe how that cultural shift
0: happened as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a great background. So what you might not remember, Bob, is we had a conversation before you started this book. And I remember saying to you, oh, dear God, don't do this. You're going to go down a rabbit hole. And it's because I was teaching at that time and I've had enough students who had a crime in their lives when they were children who go down the research rabbit hole and we never hear from them again. Right. Because it's incredibly seductive to go in and despite the the heinous aspects of the murder, but to go in and re- consider these memories and those formative experiences with violence, with people not doing their jobs or not getting the job done or getting the job done. It's just a place to go down. I'm so glad you didn't take my advice, but let's talk about that research because you've got to do it only so much and then you've got to come out and you've got to write the book much like you had to write the first book. So, When did you know that you had what you needed and how did you stop that research process? Because it's going to help a lot of people who are listening to this to know how much you need and when to stop.
1: Oh man, that's a, that's a good question. You know, it's funny uh, regarding you telling me to stop when I was at the Vermont studio center, I read from the first chapter because we, all the visiting readers or writers gave readings and a woman from Egypt, a writer from Egypt came, I was sitting in the there's a basement sort of social room where there's a piano and people do have a glass of wine after the readings and things like that and she came and actually sat at my feet and looked up at me and said don't write this book this book is going to ruin your life
0: oh
1: <laughs> um you know and sometimes i think about that moment you know i'm i'm not i have no mm-hmm. no real you know qualms about how my life has ch- turned out since then but that was you know it was people i think just people sense that yeah, th- this is heavy material and you may pay mm-hmm. a price for, you can't unsee what you see, you know? So I've seen the death mm-hmm. scene photos. I've seen, you know, um, that kind of thing. You know, I, there's actually a beautiful story about my mother um, that she asked, when I, the day that I saw them, because I went and, and read 4,000 pages of trial transcripts. And the amazing mm-hmm. thing was that I heard the voices of the people in the trial um, because this court stenographer had done such a wonderful job of capturing the accents of these people in Tennessee, many of whom were illiterate, at least uneducated. And, you know, the one that jumps out at me is when the judge, you know, they're trying to establish the credibility of a witness. And he says, now, now, sir, can you read? And the man says, I can sign a check. And, you know, that that's all, that's all that book learning. That's what he needed for his life. and, Mm-hmm. that being in that, it was like, maybe it's something mercenary, but I knew what I needed for my story. And it's a forest mm. for the trees kind of thing. Like, I knew the story that I was telling. I knew telling. what I needed for my and, story. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, so it does feel, you know, I, I'm teaching a Graham Greene seminar in St. Lawrence right now. And, you know, someone said of him, you know, there's a, 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 there's a sliver of ice in the heart of every writer. And I don't know that that's that that I'm willing to to sign up for that. But there, it, what it does come down to is, you know, is this serving my is this detail serving my story, or am I getting so wrapped up in the issue itself that I'm that I've lost sight of the story I'm telling? Um, and then that's oh, a
0: beautiful it, thing to think about.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and it's delicate too yeah. because you.
0: It's a good place. It's a good yeah. place. That's a good line of discernment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Who's yeah. this serving your your ego or your soul? Is another way to go through life, but right? It's a it's a question I was taught years ago. What is it going to serve if you do that? Your ego or your soul? Yeah. What is it going to serve here? My, my just general curiosity or the story?
1: You know, it's yeah. it, Wow, I'm I teaching, love that. My other the other class I'm teaching at St. Lawrence is a, a Amer- history of American war films, and we just watched watched two by Oliver Stone and Platoon serves his ego. And Born on the Fourth of July, when he's telling Ron Kovic's story, he has that necessary detachment from the experiences. And, and a, you know, you can get it from your own experiences, but it's much more difficult. So when he take, takes up Ron Kovic's life, he seems to have a kind of aesthetic distance that allows the film just to be better. And that's something you learn, I think, with the, with the experiences, is, is to make the difficult choice to kill your darlings, literally in some cases, in order that your story is... is you know, does the things we expect literature to do. And when you're writing about your life, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the difficult thing, is are you settling a score here or are you making art? Because often you, the <gasps> choice you make is dictated by the, the your awareness of, of that, kind of that line of discernment, as you say.
0: I love that. Are you settling a score here? Yeah, it's a great question. And I wonder when we, with that being one of the tools that we absolutely have to have in our toolbox One of the other things that I always wonder about what we have on us when we write, what we bring to the reporting, what we bring to the writing, has to do with where we've been. And you were raised in rural Tennessee, as you said. You got your PhD in creative writing from the University of Nebraska. You've lived in the North Country, which a lot of people don't know is the extreme northern New York area that has its very own culture, very specific to the area. And we you know we talk a lot about like southern writers and the regional impact of language and style on on them but we're mostly talking about fiction writers you know that sort of gothic sense that southerners seem to have we just don't have this conversation that much with fiction writers so non-fiction writers so my question for you is how are you informed by where you've been? Do you know? Did you pick up that discernment as a kid in, in in rural Tennessee? Did you pick up that eye at a PhD program? I mean, what do you think you got along the way
1: from where you were? That's such a good question. I I mean, I grew up in rural Tennessee, but I was the child of. Two English professor parents, so I knew a lot of mm-hmm. people who had that eye, and who they were prime noticers, and they were. <laughs> that's what my father was. He just he could tell you every single plant he we walked past. I still can't do that, and some of that's generational, mm-hmm. but you know they just were prime noticers, and they and they and the, the way that they used language. My father, like just around the house, like I used to laugh when I was younger. That everything had either its Latin proper Latin name or, you know, there were no nicknames for body parts in my family. It was totally clinical and (laughs) every color was exact, you know, like something was, have you seen my magenta blazer, you know? And it was, and I laughed about it, but I also, you know, by osmosis became that person. And so, um, you know, so even though it was rural Tennessee, he's from rural Texas, it was more, and I think I've just learned, you you learn so much by what you read, And by great teachers Mm -hmm. that I had, you know, who were exacting and who wouldn't let you get away with something lazy, some cliche at at any level. And, you know, um, I just I think more than anything, it was like I the the lines of poetry or the lines in fiction or in essays that I loved. I just was absolutely determined to figure out how they did that to me, you know. And so I wanted to understand how it worked because I wanted to repeat it for myself, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to participate. So I think a lot of it was uh, like, whoa, like, okay, like maybe not when I was a college freshman, but by the time I was leaving college, I was trying to figure out how these little machines worked.
0: It's a wonderful pursuit, and it's it's very tempting since you teach to ask you for a a reading list, but let's be more specific. I know, and you just told us, you're teaching Graham Greene this semester. I know you love the book, The End of the Affair. I do. I love that book, and because I was going to interview you, I went and got my copy, and Uh. I was delighted to notice how old my copy is, how many times it's been read. You can practically see it in the pages, but I had actually tucked Greene's obit into the book. Oh wow! When he died, and his obit ran in the Times, and there it is on my shelf with the obit folded carefully, tucked inside—a real act of love and appreciation. I know what the book does for me. Um, what is the value of that book for you? What? What? Why is it that you love that book
1: so? Oh, I'm such an intense romantic, you know. And and <laughs> you know, I mean, I I wouldn't yeah. want like if I were a woman, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't sign up to be in a love affair with, with Bendrix, but I mean, I am Bendrix. He is me. I mean, I, there's so much about uh, the way, you know, his, his nasty competitions and his, his slavish routines with language and the way that he loves mm-hmm. her. I mean, I it's just, and then the other thing was, you know, I directed the program, uh, St. Lawrence's program in London, and then lived there with a woman for many years after that on and off. And, the sort of Englishness of that book too. She actually lived across mm-hmm. the a cemetery from the Doubter's Chapel where Sarah's funeral is set in the novel. And when we were watching the film together, I said, I recognize that gas works. And my partner said to me, that's just across the street. And I said, you're kidding. you know?" And so <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, there's there layers. I made her get up and go walk out there with me. You know Harold Pinter's buried there. Sure. You know, so there's just the intense arch romanticism of the book. The scene where I mean, I think I think I saw a Ray Fiennes movie maybe before I read the novel. So I always see Ray Fiennes sitting at the typewriter saying, "You know, I hate you, God, for making me believe in you." You know, like it's just so it's. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it.
0: It's a killer. I do remember the first time I read it, and I remember the seventy-four times after that mm. I've read it. And it continues to inform me about decision making and love and the triangulation of faith and, and love and commitment. And whoo. So I want to get to what you're doing now uh, before I let you go. I know your mom died recently, and I'm she very did. sorry about that. Well, thank and you. I and I know you talked to me almost immediately about how you're thinking. Of writing something from there. So keeping in mind that these are writers who are listening in, what are you thinking of doing with it? And what are your obstacles? What are what are you sort of sharpening your pen to do?
1: You know, I feel like Roland Barthes said when his mother died, well, me dying won't kill anybody now. And so the land the entire my entire emotional landscape has changed. And that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world, but I approach this subject with great gravity and respect because it's so important. So getting this wrong will not be an option is one thing. And Mm. then I think it's such a, you know, there's that T.S. Eliot line in in, um, East Coker, where he says, you know, we've got this, all we have on our side is this, all these shabby instruments, meaning language, which is used up. And all the subjects have been written about by writers that are greater than you are, so what are you going to do you know and then you know <laughs> that, I read that to my students now when i you know I, and he says he's a, he's like fifty two and he's writing the poem, and I just turned fifty, so I get that i mean the the the, the weight of you know they tell you to shrug off sort of the anxiety of influence, but come on, I mean you know it's your mother it's Barth, it's william maxwell it's you know and so um I, I'm trying, so in that first, first sort of drafting of material, I just wanted to assemble the memories about her that that were most poignant for me, but also the ones that I mean, in my mother's case, you know, she was brilliant, academic, but didn't achieve the things that my father did probably because she was, a, almost definitely because she was a woman. And in her mind, it was his fault, but it probably blame could be spread more broadly across the patriarchy. Um, but here I am, this this white, you know, pr- very privileged white man who, uh, you know, h- how can I so, I? so I have trepidation about wanting to talk about those things and not being quite sure how I can do it. And um, because, you know, I became her champion. I was supposed to do the things that she had been prevented from doing. We never talked about that, but it became very clear, I think, even mm-hmm. to my siblings. Mm-hmm. And so she definitely enjoyed the, the modest successes that I had and I definitely wanted to lay them at her feet. Something beautiful. William Maxwell says in this interview uh, at the end of his life, you know, they, I think the interviewer says, what would you tell your mother? If you, if you had another chance to speak to her. And he said, I would give her my books and say, I made these for you.
0: <gasps> oh. yeah. William Maxwell, who told us, whose, whose advice to me set me off. Forever, when advice to all of us, but that I read and took very personally, Um, William Maxwell, who was a long time fiction editor of The New Yorker, a fabulous writer, and um, apparently a great friend to writers, who said, All you need to do to recreate your childhood is to remember the sound of your screen door slamming. Mm. And what that sets off, right, for us, what we have to do, what we can do with that. Yeah, I love him, and his, yeah, me too. Uh, his advice is, is, is perfect. It's just perfect. Well, there's so much there for you, and I'm hoping, I'm fascinated, of course, with the idea of the inheritance that you came by through your mother's both disappointments and success, mm. and those are the kinds of, you know, how we find our way into a story that's complicated and not merely appropriate somebody else's life, which is what your fear is here, you know, the, the cultural appropriation of, of the female psyche, you're not gonna do, you're not gonna try to recreate the female gaze here. But what, you know, we would be interested is, in is, is that inheritance, that idea of, of what to be, have that bestowed upon you. Ooh, complicated, interesting. I can't wait to read it. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. See, now you just have to write it, Bob. <laughs> that's what I say to
1: people every day. I send them out of my office. I am like, just go write it. And they give me the same look I'm giving you now.
0: Right. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you so much for coming along today. It is a pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, that's Bob Kauser. His books, Greenfields and Dream Season, are available wherever books are sold. I'm Marion Roach Smith, and you've been listening to Cordy. Subscribe wherever podcasts are available. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. And thanks for listening.